The Archangel Chronicles, copyright 2022 by Raymond Collotti, all rights reserved. Chapter 13, Eyes to the East. The victory of the Red Scythian Queen in the race caused an enormous sensation in Alexandria. To say that they became celebrities or superstars, fawned over and mobbed by the ancient version of the fans and paparazzi, would be an understatement. Posters began appearing all over the city. Graffiti celebrating the victory was scratched drawn or painted onto walls in public spaces. Axia and her brothers became the main subject of conversation among innumerable Taverna patrons. Her name was repeated over and over in the Emporium and other public spaces. Overnight, virtually the entire sporting population of Alexandria donned scarlet ribbons, silks and red scarves, or dyed tunics bearing the colors of the reds. The whole city had been converted. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, my fame and fortune was boosted to another level as well. It was gossip, whispered, and repeated amongst the poor and the rich alike that it was I who had brought her back from the dead or released her from a witch's curse and scared away the evil spirits who caused her demise. Together with this, rumors began to spread that I had cured myself of a bite from a deadly cobra, and that I had risen from a certain death. At first I didn't know what to do about this. I was completely baffled. It was no longer possible for me to walk about in the relative safety and security of my prior anonymity. I was sad about that. The prefect, Terranius, and then Sophia and Camilla insisted that I get a bodyguard to accompany me wherever I went. At first I resisted, but then finally gave in to their pleas. At dinner one night, with the prefect and Honorius at the royal palace, I was presented with the very man who would be my bodyguard, none other than Marius Cassius Scarus, 
the first centurion and primus Pilatus of the first cohort of Legio III Serenica, detached for special duty to protect me and my household. Scarus was dressed in civilian clothes, a long white tunic belted at the waist with an over-shoulder strap attached to his gladius or sword worn on the left side. He wore a white cloak pinned with a gold medallion at the shoulder. He proudly wore his medallions and medals and awards suspended from a heavy necklace around his neck and of course the legionnaire's standard hobnail sandals, the Caligula. He looked like a linebacker, thick-boned, solid powerful, with a thick neck as wide as his bullet head and a weightlifter's forearms. Even when out of his imposing centurion's armor and transverse red-crested steel helmet, he looked very formidable indeed. His face was weathered, pockmarked, and scarred. Honorius introduced him to me. Primus Pilatus, let me introduce you to your new charge, Adamus. Well, Dominus, my lord, sir, we've actually met before, Scarus said as he nodded his head in greeting to me. Well, well, Dominus Adamus Julius Aliquis, he said, looking at me up and down carefully. By Mars, you've come up in the world. I take it you've given up fishing those damn catfish for your healing profession. By the gods, what are the chances? Scarus smiled broadly, revealing strong white teeth. I shook hands warmly with him. Turning to Honorius, I said, Now here is a solid, straightforward fellow with no pretensions. Scarus squeezed my hand like a vise, making me wince, and I laughed. It's a good thing that monster of a catfish didn't eat you, Scarus, or I would have been deprived of a stout bodyguard. We both laughed at the inside joke to Honorius's puzzlement. Scarus quickly settled into our little household. Abu was at first intimidated by him, but as time went on and Scarus's good nature began to show him that he was no threat, he really warmed to him. Scarus was a natural storyteller, and he had a wealth of experiences to draw upon. He had served in the forests of Germany on the punitive raids against the tribes who participated in the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest, where three Roman legions had been destroyed. He had made his fame on the Cantabrian Wars in Spain, where he single-handedly fought off an enemy attack on a Roman fort until reinforcements arrived. He had served with the prefect of Egypt, Gallus, at the time in an obscure but disastrous invasion of southern Arabia and in other battles in the Forgotten War against the Ethiopians. He had no peer as a storyteller. Through many an evening at the end of the day, he stood before our hearth and regaled Abu, Melissa and I with his old war stories, with his expressive face and dramatic hand gestures and body movements. Abu was enthralled. Scarus became his hero. In his spare time, Scarus fashioned a scotum or shield, a training sword, and found an old copper pot for a helmet, all for Abu. He began to train him in the art of combat. Abu, being the quick learner that he was, rose to the occasion, 
growing ever more skilled in the thrust, stab, and parries of swordplay. The antics of Atlas and Calliope drove Scarus into gales of laughter. They liked him too. I often came upon them with Scarus teaching them complicated tricks. Soon he had them sitting on his shoulders like two stuffed animals, causing visitors to our apartments to startle and stare in amazement as they moved and jumped to a table or a shelf or to the floor. Scarus, being my bodyguard, accompanied me on my visits to see Sophia at the museum or the library or when I went to see her at her apartments in the evenings. I introduced him to Sophia at the end of a long day after treating the usual cases of broken bones, contusions, concussions and abrasions following one of those races at the Legion. My lady Sophia, I said, let me introduce you to this stout fellow here, salt of the earth, my designated bodyguard, and my friend Marius Cassius Scarus, most recently Primus Pilatus, first cohort Legio III Serenica. He has been tasked to guard me, a humble physician, for what reasons I do not know. Sophia, ever gracious and beautiful, extended her hand to Scarus, who immediately blushed beet red, bowed deeply, and brought her hand to his forehead. You are most welcome here, my dear Scarus, she said after retrieving her hand. It is not often that these walls are graced with the presence of a hero. We are humbled and honored, and I am personally thankful that you have become Adam Anyone's personal guardian, for he shall surely need one. Scarus was at a loss for words. My lady, my lady, we, he stammered. My dear Scarus, honored warrior and guardian, let me introduce you to my guardian, the Lady Camilla. You two guardians should get to know each other because I suspect we will be spending much time together in the near future, said Sophia, motioning Camilla to come forward. Camilla did. She was a most handsome woman in her own right, and she and Scarus were about the same vintage by my judgment. She curtsied and said, Good evening, honored centurion. We welcome you and are at your service always, she said as she bowed. Scarus turned an even brighter shade of red if that were possible. I noticed that Camilla as well was blushing and holding her breath. Scarus bowed deeply. Madam was all he could muster at the time. On the way home at the end of the evening, Scarus, who could be a taciturn fellow at times, was positively gushing with words. That Lady Sophia's a gem physician, he poked me in the ribs, and I can see that she has an eye for you, my man. Amen, Scarus, and I am devoted to her, I replied. Well now, physician, sir, if I may be so bold as to pass on some manly advice, friend to friend, so to speak, Scarus said. You see, physician, sir, it seems to me that this lady is like a precious jewel. A pearl, maybe. One might spend a lifetime looking for such a treasure. But I think that ye should take that pearl and put it in a safe place, if ye seize me meaning, Dominus, sir, Scarus said and very thoughtfully and deliberately. Seems to me, if you wants to know, 
that if that pearl was suddenly hidden in, uh, say, a field, you'd want to sell everything you had to buy that field, if you seize my meaning, sir. At this point, I stopped in mid-stride and turned to look at him. Scarus, my friend, you are a wise man, and you speak truth. And if that field were far away, it would be worth a lifetime to travel to find it, I said, putting my hand on his shoulder. And if I had to be on such a journey, I would hope for a stout friend like you to help me find it. We resumed our walk. Tell me, my friend, I said. I noticed that you took a shine to that lady Camilla. I saw the two of you walk talking. What did she say to you? Ah, physician Dominus, sir, you don't miss very much. She is indeed a most handsome woman. We spoke of home, of Italia, of Roma, of Picanum, my birthplace. Scar sighed. But she is far above my station, and she would have no interest in this veteran, methinks. Why, you sell yourself short, my friend, I said, clapping him on the back. Set your sights higher. I think that there may be two pearls of great value in that field when we search for it. Skyrus grew thoughtful. Life was good, but I think of that old Robert Burns poem to amuse, where he wrote, The best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft a glay. And so it was that with this new life of mine, it was set to change dramatically and knock me off my comfortable existence. For adventure would come calling in the form of a summons early one morning with a note penned by Honorius and delivered by the prefect Terranius himself. Madam, you are being summoned to a high level meeting at the royal palace by Honorius. It has all been explained to me and now I see that there was great need for secrecy. This commission comes from the very highest level, from Caesar Augustus himself, he said as he handed me the scroll, sealed with Honorius' stamp. I broke the seal and read the note. From Paulus Fabius Honorius, Senator, by direct commission from Caesar Augustus, Princeps, to Adamus Julius Aliquis, Physician and esteemed member of the Museum of Alexandria, greetings, friend. Recent events have proven that you have unique talents in the healing arts and natural sciences. You have also been noted to have a valuable gift as a translator and facilitator of many languages. Your fatherland has need of these talents for an important mission. By command of the divine Caesar Augustus, Princeps of the Senate and people of Rome, you are summoned to a meeting of scholars, senators, statesmen, and businessmen to give advice to me as direct agent of the Princeps about a vital matter of state that must remain secret. Please come with Terenius to the royal palace for consultations. You will be greatly rewarded for your trouble. I rolled up the scroll and looked at Terenius. What is this about? You will find out soon enough. My lips are sealed. Come, now. I don't suppose I could refuse. Not a chance. This is a command, not an invitation or request. I dressed and followed Terenius, and after a quick chariot ride through the streets of the awakening city, 
found myself in a large chamber in the royal palace, standing around an enormous map of the then known world. There in the center, I recognized the Mediterranean, called Mare Nostrum by the Romans. And there was the Black Sea, called the Euxine or Pontus Euxines. There were the great rivers we moderns called the Don and the Dnieper, in what I recognized in my time as the Ukraine. There was the Caspian Sea, called the Inhospitable Sea. The great map trailed off to the east, towards those distant lands we now know as Siberia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tibet, Mongolia, and China, which the Romans called the Land of the Silk or the Land of the Quinn. Then there was a well-defined area we moderns know as Pakistan and India. The shapes were not well drawn and the scale was far off, but it was all recognizable to my modern mind. With all its inaccuracies, it was still an impressive document, painstakingly drawn on a series of large, stitched-together pieces of vellum. I was standing amongst the elites, Scarus at my side. A number of distinguished-looking aristocrats dressed in togas were milling around. In amongst them moved well-dressed merchants and traders. Terranius, officers of the first court, including Lucius, whispered to each other. Didymus, Rufus, Sophia, and several dozen, dozen scholars represented the academy. To my surprise, standing in the middle of the group of these people, holding court, was none other than Theron, accompanied by Axia and her two brothers, being fawned over by the people in the group. Sophia introduced me to Nicholas of Damascus, a distinguished-looking scholar dressed in Greek fashion, in a linen imitation draped around his body, leaving one skinny shoulder sticking out. This man had the mandatory white hair and long white beard, which seemed to be de rigueur for ancient scholars. Theron tapped his ruby-tipped staff on the floor and shouted for order to begin the proceedings. Sophia glided forward gracefully. Honored conscript fathers, honored legate Paulus Fabius Honorius, honored prefect Gaius Tyrannius, honored colleagues of the Museum, honored commander of the first cohort, Lucius and Scarus, first centurion of the same, Sophia announced, bowing her head to each attendee in turn. We greet you, Vasilisa Axia Panopilis, she who is worthy of armor, warrior queen of the mighty Massagete, and your two noble warrior brothers, Prototheas and Skumaxa, commanders of the Massagetean hosts. I welcome you all to this assembly, in this great seat of learning, center of all knowledge in the empire. I was watching Lucius, the tribune, as Sophia glided about the room as she introduced each of these parties with a graceful nod of her head. All eyes were fixed on her. Sophia, completely oblivious to her own physical beauty, was of great interest to the assembly. Of course, I was painfully smitten by her myself, 
and I struggle to maintain a professional attitude so as not to betray my inner feelings. But without knowing it, she had Scarus, that hard-bitten, tough centurion wrapped around her little finger. I noticed at least one other lovesick male couldn't take his eyes off her. Lucius, the Tribune, could not disguise the fact that he was still an unrequited lover. His eyes followed her every movement. He was in a sort of ecstasy, even being in her presence. But Sophia was utterly unaware of the power that she had on these men. I looked towards Axia, flanked by her two muscular brothers, resplendent in her royal armor, silk trousers, and gilded greaves, red silk caftan with sleeves encrusted with golden animals, crowned with a high-peaked golden helmet, braided red hair spilling down her back. She looked every inch the queen. Her gaze, as well, was fixed on Sophia, as if she were watching some exotic bird. Axia looked serene but fierce, coiled like a spring with latent power. It seemed to me that she was still sizing Sophia up, and Axia was indeed a dangerous woman, I thought. Honorius stepped forth and urged all of the company to assemble around the large map on the marble table. Hail all honored guests here assembled. Hail Caesar who has sent me here to give his greetings. Friends of Rome, one and all, he said. He raised a scroll in his right hand. I have here a commission, penned and signed by the emperor himself. What you will be told must not leave this room on pain of death. What we are about to discuss will change the future of the empire and bring the wealth of the East to us all. Honorius turned to Axia and her brothers. Great Vasilisa, the divine Augustus greets you as a queen of the sovereign lands of the Masagite. We have spoken before this meeting and you have given your sacred bond sovereign to sovereign, as a friend of the Senate and people of Rome, to be sworn to secrecy, for which the Emperor thanks you. He nodded to Axia and received a nod in return. Worthy citizen, Nicholas of Damascus, he said, turning to the distinguished-looking scholar, you are the court philosopher of Herod, king of Judea. You are a corresponding member of the Museum, and the great library guild here in Alexandria. Your emperor greets you and has commanded me to thank you for your recent services. Pray, tell this assembly of your meetings with the ambassador from King Aesis from the lands of the Indus. Honorius yielded the floor of the assembly to Nicholas. Nicholas now stood before the assembly. He bowed respectfully to Honorius and then to the other members of the assembly. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that at the mention of Herod, Axia sat bolt upright, her eyes blazing at Nicholas. Uh-oh, I thought to myself, unforeseen consequences. She obviously would be hostile to anyone associated with the friend of her enemy and poisoner, Eurycles. I would have to keep an eye on her and warn Honorius. 
Nicholas, in a scholarly, detached manner, stood before us, one hand clutching a fold of his imitation with his right hand and gesturing with his left in an, e in an easy, fluid manner to emphasize the points of his speech. Worthy scholars and honored citizens here assembled, he began. About twenty years ago, I was summoned to Antioch by the then governor of Syria. There I was introduced to a strange man, a type of monk or priest, who wore very little clothing, only a loincloth. He was an ascetic, I would say a radical one. He was unlike anyone I had ever seen before. He never seemed to eat or drink, nor did he ever seem to sleep. He was not affected by either the heat of the day, nor the coldness of the winter, or high mountain air. He walked about barefoot, and his only possession was a gnarled, well-worn walking stick and a small sack in which he carried all of his worldly possessions. His head was shaved, and his long, scraggly black beard, streaked with white, hung down to his waist. Strangely enough, this foreigner spoke perfect Greek. This man claimed to have been dispatched by his king Aziz, whom he said was Lord Abari Gaza, a Saku king from the lands of the Indoi. He claimed to have walked all the way from there with a few companions from his order of monks all across Asia to Syria. He had a scroll with him, a letter written by the king himself, again in perfect Greek. And here is what that letter said. Nicholas Nell pulled a scroll from the folds of his himation and unrolled it and began to read. To Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, now called Augustus Caesar, princeps of the Senate and people of Rome's greetings. I, Aziz, king of Berigaza, lord of 600 kings, send you greetings from my lands over 27,000 stadia distant from the center of your great empire. Though the distance is great, we esteem thy friendship, O great ruler. The gymnosophist who bears this letter is highly esteemed amongst us. We wish to invite you to send an embassy to our lands so that we may discuss a treaty of friendship. We hereby give your envoys a guarantee of safe passage to our lands, to come here to any part hereof that pleases you, to establish a post for trading between our two great empires in peace. With the monk who bears this letter, whose name is Armon Chagas, we send you gifts, eight servants, fragrant with perfumes for your service, a tiger from our deepest woods, a great serpent, 10 cubits in length, and a river tortoise, three cubits in length from our rivers, and a partridge larger than a vulture from our skies. In token of our wish for your friendship, and as a bond for our fidelity and good faith, we command Zarmano Chagas to make preparations for when you read this letter. He will give a demonstration of our bond and seal it with his sacred mystery. Nicholas rolled up the scroll and looked to the assembly. I conveyed this extraordinary man to Herod, my master. Herod dispatched a message to the princeps, 
and I accompanied Zarmanochegus to Athens, where Caesar Augustus himself was spending the winter. Zarmanochegus was physically spent from his long, long travels. He was downcast about the loss of his companions, for he had begun his journey with a company of his order, the servants who had been sent by the king as gifts, along with the tiger, the serpent, the tortoise, and the partridge. All of these died or escaped on the long journey, or were victims of bandits or pirates along the way. Despite my attempts to cheer him up by pointing out the astonishing fact that he had completed the journey alone with no companions, equipment, transportation, clothes, and money, he had nevertheless succeeded in delivering the king's letter to the princeps. This man remained melancholic and felt that he had lost face and that he had failed in his mission. The day finally came for Zermano Chagas to have his audience with the princeps. The meeting was to occur at the Acropolis. Zarmano Chagas requested certain preparations to be made before the meeting. He asked that the meeting take place on the portico of the Parthenon. He asked for the hearth there to be fully stocked with fuel and that a blazing fire be lit. These modest requests were met. The monk, clothed as always in nothing more than his loincloth, approached Caesar Augustus, knelt before him, bowing his head and touching the floor. The princeps ordered him to rise, which he did, and he thus submitted his scroll to Caesar with bowed head. Caesar Augustus made a show of unrolling the scroll and reading it, although he had already known its contents. My lord, said Zarmanochegus, I beg forgiveness. I have failed both you and Lord King Aziz. I cannot deliver along with this letter the presence which you were promised. The way here was long and treacherous, beset with many dangers and mishaps. Alas, I have lost them all, and there is nothing more to present to you but one last humble sacrifice. Noble soul, Master Zarmanchegas, fear not, said Caesar, rising from his chair. He walked over to the humble monk and placed his hands on the man's bare shoulders, visibly moved by both the message in the scroll and the poor man's request for forgiveness. I say to you, noble soul, that your commission has been successful. We accept your great king's offer of friendship and will, as soon as we are able, convey an embassy back to your far lands, with you to your great king. You will bring him our friendship and our own gifts for him, and we will accept his offer to establish a base for trade that will benefit both of our great peoples. This we promise. To this Zarmanochegus bowed. Noble princeps, lord of the empire of the west, we thank you. But I am old and feeble, and I do not think I will live to see my home again. He bowed again and walked over to the hearth blazing in the temple portico. He stopped for a moment and stared at the fire. Turning back around to Augustus, he said, My lord, I have already given my friend Nicholas detailed instructions with a map of our lands to guide your envoys back there. Alas, 
they must go without me. Since I have no gift to give you but my own life, humble as it is, I do so now. With this, the man turned and jumped into the blazing hearth. This caused a consternation amongst all concerned. The princeps himself was at first shaken with the horror of the sight and rose to his feet intending to stop the man, but too late. Caesar was moved beyond words by these historic and extraordinary events. He pondered many days on this meeting. At last, he decided that the humble man's act was one of selfless courage and loyalty to his master and should be honored. By his command then, a tomb was built. The cemetery where the tomb now stands is a sacred place, where the Hiera Hodos, the sacred way to the Illusion Fields begins. There this monk's ashes were interned with this inscription on his tomb. Zarmanochegas, an Indian native to Bargosa, having immortalized himself according to the custom of his people, here lies. Nicholas, his part of the saga now finished, bowed to Honorius and the rest of the assembly and went back to his place. Honorius held the floor again. It is now my turn to continue the story, he said. At the princeps' command and by order of the Senate, an embassy of selected envoys was dispatched by sea to the Erythian Sea on a single ship. I was one of the envoys. We traveled many months, hugging the shoreline around Arabia, and at length, after many adventures, eluding pirates along the way, we did make contact with King Aziz and did establish a treaty of friendship with him. Many gifts were exchanged, for we were able to bring gold, silver, colored glass vessels, and fine clothes, and red coral jewelry with us. In return, we were presented with eight servants, a giant serpent more than ten cubits in length, and this. Honorius clapped his hands three times. The crowd parted, facing the direction where Honorius looked. The large doors of the chambers opened. A procession came forward, eight beautiful maidens, dressed in colorful embroidered silks, walked forward, bejeweled with fine gold chains and earrings, bangles and necklaces, ringed fingers encrusted with emeralds and rubies. They stepped forward behind two turbaned drummers, stripped to the waist, beating out a cadence. These maidens, with eyes averted demurely to the floor, elbows out, hands prayerfully together, slowly danced their way forward. Behind them were two more burly, muscular men, each holding a thick golden chain, which was attached to a golden collar. The collar was worn by a large Bengal tiger walking gracefully between them, its eyes moving, surveying these curious beings in the assembly, who were in turn staring back at it, thunderstruck. Of course, in my other life, in that other world and existence, I had seen a tiger before. But I thought about just how exotic, how incredible, how exquisite it must have been for each person in that room 
to have seen a tiger for the first time. I thought about that well-known William Blake poem I had memorized in my distant school days. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thy eyes? And on what wings did he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? Cries of astonishment went up from the assembly. All craned their necks and stood on tiptoes to get a better look. Honorius now continued with his story. Alas, honored company, the story is not yet over, nor even does it yet have a satisfactory beginning. Though we did manage to establish a post and returned with this and much more in the hold of our ship, we have not been able to repeat the voyage nor establish a stable route. Pirates have barred the way, but wait now for there is more for you to learn. Honorius now turned again to Axia and Theron. Bowing to her, he said, Vasilisa and Theron, our friend, tell us of the Silk Road. Theron, ever the showman, stood before the assembly, planted his snakeskin-clad feet and walking stick, topped with a large gemstone firmly, and began to declaim in his best and loudest circus announcer's voice. Theron repeated the story of the Scythians and of Axia Prototheses, Skumaxa and their father, King Bartatua. He told of the overland trade routes, traveling by the caravans of his father, of the Altai Mountains and the land of the Quinn. He told of the treachery of Artataxes, the murder of Bartatua, and the escape of Axia the queen and her brothers, and how they all found their way back to here, to Alexandria. On finishing his recounting, Theron paused for effect. He raised his bejeweled walking stick over his head and stomped it to the ground for emphasis. Murder, I say, treachery. The usurper Artaxes has seized our caravans. He has blocked our trade routes over the Silk Road. He has aligned himself to the Parthians, so none may pass peacefully through those routes. He looked around the room, and voice rising proclaimed, But there is a way. We can raise an army of fierce warriors to open that which has been denied us. We can restore the land of the Masajite to its rightful ruler, to the Vasilisa Axia. The assembly already excited about the treasures and exotic animals that they had seen, listened spellbound to Theron's expert storytelling. When he had finished his part, he turned to Axia. Vasilisa, I beg you to now tell this assembly your plan. All eyes now turned to Axia Panopilus, she who is worthy of armor, who now stood and faced the assembly. For way too long This can't keep going on With every lie They keep on hurting you Get in the way with everything they do 
going on, oh We're gonna find them And I'm gonna fight for you They better start hiding We'll be running with the lions, lions We'll be running with the lions, lions Music for Chapter 13 Ed Records Legends Epic Sound Yuta Kata by Sayuri Hayashi Egnal Twins Music Rise Epic Sound A March Across Ancient Land by John Abbott Zach Nelson Myth Epic Sound one Final Mission by Christopher Moe Ditlevson. Epic Sound, Far Away from the Shore by Sight of Wonders. Ed Records, A New Quest. Epic Sounds, Mr. Payne by Lennon Hutton. Epic Sound, End of an Era by Christopher Moe Ditlevson. Epic Sound, To Valhalla by John Abbott. Epic Sound, Time is Running Fast, by John Bajork. Alexander Vazanin, Danger. Epic Sound, Running with the Lions, by Loving Caliber. <laughs> 